You are listening to iRadio TT online all the time. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to Music Matters the Caribbean edition. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Music Matters Caribbean. And if you want to listen to our previous podcasts and keep up with our new material, check out the website podcast.iradio.tt or listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Radio Public, and more of your favorite podcast platforms. Welcome to Music Matters, the Caribbean edition. The podcast series featuring news, interviews, and analysis of all the music from the islands. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Music Matters. The Caribbean Edition. I'm Laura Dorrance Phillips. And I'm Nigel Campbell. And once again, we're talking about the business of music here in the Caribbean. Yes, we are, Nigel. We're still in quarantine, still in a semi-lockdown, and we're still interviewing and talking to major players in the Caribbean music industry, both here and abroad. And Nigel, introduce our guest today. Yeah, well, today I thought it was important that we get a perspective from outside of Trinidad and outside of the Caribbean. So we have a journalist who has written for Billboard for Rolling Stone, for the Daily Beast, and for a number of smaller publications based in North America, a lover of Caribbean music. Ladies and gentlemen, Pat Mesquito. Hi, Pat. Hi, Nigel. Hi, Laura. Great to be with you today. Yeah, wonderful. Thank Look. you. Welcome, Pat. Welcome, Pat. Yes. How are you doing? Oh, very well, thank you. Yeah, we're doing quite well here in New York City now, and, um, you know, looking forward to getting past this uh, COVID and uh, hopefully see things open up as the year progresses. But yeah, doing quite well. Thank you. Good. Please keep safe. Pat, um, you have been, anybody who's been following your career, you know, you see your stories being shared all over Facebook, all over social media. You've been writing about the Caribbean and Caribbean culture for a long time. Um, You're not from the Caribbean. No. How did you get interested in Caribbean culture? How did you start writing about Caribbean culture? Yes. Well, I, um, you know, as a, as a child, I, growing up, I was always interested in music. I always bought a lot of records as a kid, all kinds of music. And I had the Harder They Come soundtrack as a young child. And that was my big into, introduction to reggae. I uh, moved to New York when I was 17 years old and that to attend school and that kind of opened up a whole new world of reggae. I was introduced to so much more music than I knew existed, especially the uh, DJ side of things, the Yellow Man and the um, Lone Ranger and, you know, the great, great DJs of that era. And um, I had been in school, uh, told that I could write, but I was not particularly motivated to write about anything. So just kind of getting my assignments done and that was it. But um, one day a friend of mine, her boyfriend who played in a rock band in the area of the East Village, uh, close to where we lived, he suggested to me, well, if you love reggae so much, maybe that's the thing you should be writing about. And it really clicked in my head, like, wow, that's something I could see myself doing. I wasn't exactly sure how to go about it, but it was something that I could see myself investing time 
in doing, you know, because I mean, obviously the thing you love doing and then actually making a living at it sometimes don't always align. But um, over the 30 years that I've been doing it now, I think it's made it align somewhat. It could line up a little better. I mean, I have to be candid, but, um, you know, thankfully it has worked out and, but it's been a very slow tedious process a lot of years a lot of work I and mean, still still a lot of work but I'm very grateful to have found something that I'm really passionate about doing and still am so many years later excellent stuff one of the things um Pat that of course you and I had this conversation before this this podcast uh-huh. I wanted one of the catalysts for me reaching out to you of course is this recent situation that happened with Billboard magazine and the recent Beanie Man Bounty Killer versus um versus show as we all know they um they got a cover story it may have been on a digital edition of, of billboard with where swiss beats and timberland were featured in the cover and there was some little clap back from the caribbean about the fact that neither beanie man or bounty killer were on the cover although the author of the piece did mention that she had written about the artist of course in the magazine and um and Swiss Beats, I think, of Timberland, they put out a kind of a reworked cover, Photoshop cover with, with both Beanie and Bounty on a thing. I'm just curious in terms of the mechanics of how a magazine, whether Billboard or whatever magazine, take me through the process, if you don't mind, in terms of the mechanics of getting stories on and certainly how to get a cover story in Billboard. Okay. Um, yeah, well, let's say for now, for my perspective as a writer um you know everything everything that i've done in billboard with very few exceptions involves pitching the story so it's either i have an idea about oh this would make a great piece about this artist or this movement going on here or there whatever it is or maybe a publicist will bring something to me saying oh did you know that um my client is dropping an album next week and we have a video we'd like to premiere or we have a, um, an announcement we'd like to make. And do you know that they have X amount of followers or that this artist has been in the game a very long time? Whatever it is, what I always look for when receiving these pitches or even with my own ideas that I'm trying to formulate as a pitch is like, does it tell a good story? And then would it be of interest to that readership? Like, even if it's not someone they're necessarily familiar with, like, would it be something they'd be interested in? And, um, you know, when, when I can, in my mind, be satisfied that, yes, those conditions are met, then I would either go ahead and write up my own pitch, because I always do that. I never would take, like, what a publicist sends me and just paste it in an email and send it to an editor. But I just try to you know, skew it in in the way that I think it's most relevant to Billboard or to the Daily Beast or wherever I am pitching the story, you know. So, um, and then it's from there, it is the editor's discretion. If they say, yes, we see, we see the value in this or yeah, this sounds like a great story or they might say, you know, I've even heard like, this sounds great, but we're going to pass. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's like, it's very much a, um, you know, it could be whatever they have on tap for that week or the coming week, it would be too much to take this thing on, or it could be, you know, this is a great idea, but the publicist's only giving you five days to turn this around. It's impossible for us on our end to handle it. You know, there's all kinds of reasons 
um, apart from the idea, like maybe why they're saying no to something. But, you know, it, everything involves pitching and everything involves, you know, then an editor making a decision on whatever that pitch is. And I mean, as far as the, um, just to comment on the Beanie and Bounty, like, which I, of course, had nothing to do with, but except for the fact that I write for Billboard, but, um, okay. you know, I could only think that um, looking at um, maybe a list of artists who appeared on Verses, and if there is, if the person maybe laying out the artwork hadn't seen what Beanie and Bounty did or wasn't familiar with the audience that they attracted that night, which was a half a million people. Half a million people. This is undeniably, you know, a success. There's no way to say that that is a phenomenal success and either the highest or the second highest in the whole series, you know, but if you're not familiar with that and if you're not familiar with those artists, you know, that's the only thing I could guess is why those two would be left off of a cover like that. But I don't know, and that's just me totally second guessing and maybe, you know, I shouldn't comment because I don't have any informed uh, information about why that happened, but that's mm. only my thought of why it would happen. But I, I can say in my experiences and my one comment I did make on this is that overall, I think Billboard has been very welcoming to Caribbean music. You know, sure, it always hurts when an idea doesn't go through, but, you know, I, I just know that, you know, they answer, I have to answer to them. They have to answer to someone else. Someone else has to answer to somebody else. So there, mm. and budgets are always looming around everything. So, you know, it could be like, I like this idea, but you know, I said yes to two other things just this morning and this would tip things over the edge. Like there's all of these kinds of considerations being made, but I, I do feel they've been very welcoming over the years. Many things I've pitched are, are and gotten through are not people who are attracting half a million people for anything, but it's just yeah. telling like a, an important story or it's, um, you know, an important piece of this trajectory of these musics, which I feel is really lacking in a lot of the coverage today. It's part of being a journalist in 2020. We see that the, um, captions seem to be like you know like you premiere a video and it's maybe like a paragraph caption as opposed to a story about who is this artist and what is this video all about you know but that yeah. seems to be the era we're living in it's captions and it's short and sweet not long yeah. form almost anymore you know yeah. so well thank you for your opinion but, as i said i'm not going to suggest that you, you had anything to do with laura you wanted to say something no i was just going to say as a, as a media from a media perspective it kind of simply been that they were focused on the American audience and they put people on the cover who Americans could readily identify with. Mm -hmm. Remember when Beanie and Bounty were first announced on Versus, a lot of Americans on the Versus page were like, who? Right. They didn't know who they were. Yeah, it was the Caribbean people who were making all the noise. You right, know? exactly. It could have been just, that just could have been the thinking. It's, it's, it's your proximity. I'm appealing to this audience. This is why I chose this cover. They didn't probably just didn't take into account. Well, yeah, they had the biggest versus. It was just a matter of well, they may not be as well known to American audience. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know. Yeah. I wanna, yeah. 
I want to be a little chauvinistic now here. Me and the Trinidadian with soca music versus dancehall music from Jamaica. Because one of the things, there are a couple of things that come, arise in terms of the coverage of Caribbean music, sorry, soca music in, in, in America. And of course, I'm not suggesting that you are the spokesperson for all writers in America. But I'd like to get your perspective in terms of, there's a thing that happens where reggae, sorry, where soca is now considered as reggae. They're on the reggae charts. There's no soca charts. There's not, there's, it's easier just to categorize. And I've always been slightly confused about categorization from the American perspective. And I don't know if you have an opinion in terms of the idea that soca is now relegated to the reggae section of the billboard charts or basically in terms of conversation. Even at one point, we had this ridiculous thing about tropical house because somebody <laughs> came over that idea. Right. But, but I'm just curious about your perspective on the idea of how we categorize, how the American media categorizes non-reggae non music or even non-reggaeton music. Everything else has to go into one of those two categories. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously I don't think it's, it's quite fair, nor is it giving the music its proper due. I mean, Soka, as you both know so very well and have projected through your work over so many years, you know, Soka has its own very unique, distinctive, important story that, you know, I would love to see told more often than it has been told in the American media. I know in my experience, it's been a harder sell, but I believe it's a harder sell because people just don't really know what it is, the way that they know what reggae is, and they don't really even know what that is as fully as, you know, you would want. Um, clearly, the Beanie and Bounty being an example of that, like if people really knew that, you know, knew these artists and their achievements, verses aside, but their achievements, then you add in verses, like it would be, uh, you know, of course, it would be a, a no-brainer that they should be on a cover. But um, that said, you know, uh, I think reggae has had, um, as I mentioned at the in the beginning, you know, it, it had its, um, of course, Bob Marley being that figurehead that who transcends Jamaica, transcends reggae. He's an icon. Everything. He's just, you know, the biggest thing out there, the biggest artist. And, you know, it's so having that kind of gave Jamaica this uh, distinction in, in the Caribbean um, to non-Caribbean folks in terms of being more readily identifiable. Then you have the, um, the major label signings of predominantly dancehall artists in that early 90s, which at that point is when Mr. Tim the late Timothy White came in to Billboard as the editor. And um, he had said like one of the things he wanted to do when he came on board, and he had also written Bob Marley's biography, he wanted to establish a reggae chart. That was one of his things that was something that drove him that yeah. he really wanted to do and he was able to accomplish it now maybe if there was someone else in that position who was as passionate about a soca chart or a caribbean chart that is non-reggae but everything else all inclusive know. yes mm -hmm. but i know i have had this not in recent years i'd say about Five years ago, I have had discussions with the charts department about, you know, it would be great if there could be a, you know, a chart for Caribbean music that is separate from the reggae artists because the, they tend to get, the other soca artists tend to get lost on, on this. And it's not really fair to 
put them on there because it's not what their music is, you know? And to which I was told like, well, where are the numbers? What numbers can you show us that we need to do this? Because we have heard that. We have heard that. This thing about a numbers game controlling everything in the music industry now, including publication. Go ahead. And even even, um, the Grammys having had discussions, there's even been discussions about uh, dance hall, dance hall Grammy separate from a reggae Grammy. And, um, you know, again, it's the same thing. Like, well, where is this demand? And as they, as they now even shrink in categories and in presentations, we'll see what the virtual Grammys bring if, you know, in 2021 or however they handle that. But knowing that those categories have been shrinking as the years have gone on, you know, it's likely that they're going to introduce another Caribbean uh, focus yeah. category at this point, unless there becomes such a great demand, as we see with um, you know uh, Latin music from Puerto Rico, from Dominican Republic. I mean, this is the Caribbean too, but they have they're identifying with the wider Latin American market, you know. And yeah. and you look at that when you put all that together, these are some significant numbers that do warrant something separate from the other things but yes so i have had these discussions because it's come up so much and i thought you know let's see if anything i could say could have any kind of meaning or you know significance in any way but it was like you know if you can give us some real data that proves that this is bigger than you know what we think it is or what you know what it seems to be then you know we can consider it but at this point like it doesn't seem to be enough of a demand to warrant introducing this chart. And also because each tracking, something uh, Timothy White pointed out when that reggae chart was established is that, um, you know, it, it costs money for Nielsen to track the activity of all these songs and these albums, it, albums back in the day when the chart Back started. in the day, yeah. Now it's, you know, you're streaming, your views and so forth. Um, but it's something, you know, I would love to see like uh, all these data companies popping up. And I, I knew of one person in New York, I'm certainly not going to name names because I don't know where his mind is about this now, but he had a lot of data in place. And I was very much in his ear about, you know, this is something Caribbean could really use in terms of seeing what our artists I hope you don't mind me saying our artists, but you know, our yeah, artists are You're doing, allowed. Okay, thank you. You know, what our artists are doing out there because we know it might not be showing up on these certain metrics that we're looking at, but I know it's more than what we're being told it is, but now we just need a way of verifying that, you know, so... Um, you know, Pat, we, we had spoken about that here, about the fact that we... In a earlier podcast, we've spoken about the fact that maybe we need any Caribbean and the diaspora to develop another form of metrics to, to measure this thing because we can't, you know, we're not a big album buying mm-hmm. population, although now more and more people are making efforts to encourage people to buy, you know, to buy the music, even though even streaming, you know, to just don't just get your music illegally, to actually pay money and, and streaming music. Um, maybe we we need our to develop our own kind of metrics to show how the music is being consumed because you know we have carnivals just taking soca we have carnivals all over the world mm-hmm. 
Jamaica, in Paris, in Rotterdam, and right. so what is driving all of this? Exactly. There, there's the, the music is out there, but we just don't know how to capture that information. Um, what, what, what sort of things you think we need? Other things you think we should be doing in order to encourage, um, you know, in order to convince like people like Billboard that that. There is a demand for this music, and it's some music that's being consumed. Well, again, you know, to your point of establishing some kind of a metric, be it a chart, be it whatever, like, absolutely, even, even if Billboard said tomorrow, yeah, we want to do this Soka chart, it would still be in the interest of people in the Caribbean to come up with their own set of metrics to say, you know, this really is happening like this and i know the technology exists where you can track like a song if it's played you know wherever it's streamed in the world you can track that you know wherever radio stations are playing it in the world you can track that it's just a matter of bringing all that data together and then presenting it and say look at this powerful block you know we have these songs played i don't know how many times i mean i'm seeing that um Kess's Hello is now streamed 70 million times like since 2018. I think that is phenomenal. I mean, for a song that hasn't had any kind of label pushing it or, you know, it's him doing it. Hello, hello, hello. Those are good numbers, yes. Fantastic, you know, and I think that's a real success story. And it's like to also like boast about these things and like help push these things out there. And as much as we get incensed about, yeah, Beanie and Bounty should have been on this cover, let's go out there and be posting about, look what Kess is doing. Look what, you know, look what Marcel did. Look what uh, Protégé is doing. Like whoever it is, whatever they're doing, when they reach these milestones, or you know, Cal- Calypso Rose and the history that she created mm-hmm. last year. I mean, yeah, up there with you know Coachella. Like that's a phenomenal thing that many artists don't get to do in their life, let alone in their late seventies. And you know, this is phenomenal. These are phenomenal achievements. So um, mm-hmm. I think that's part of it too, to be as proactive when you don't like something, absolutely voice it and make that known. But when someone's really doing great things, also make that known and support them. He's at 70 million. Can we get this to 80 million? You know, can we, mm-hmm. how long will it take to do this for him to break a hundred million? You know, I mean, it's these are great things. And these are things that, other companies take note of and can help make a bigger statement for Soka in places where it hasn't been able to make those kind of statements yet. Well, you okay. know, Pat, I just wanted to follow up from the last comment you made about, um, you know, what things we could do to celebrate, you know, to talk about, highlight the achievements of our artists. And in fact, in the media, I know for sure in Trinidad, in Jamaica, we write a lot about what's going on with the music. Um, but we never feel like we, we always feel as as Nigel says, we always feel like we're invisible to the global <laughs> to the, invisible people. That's what we are. Outside of the diaspora. 
And more and more of us in the Caribbean have been having that conversation, especially in media. And we're wondering if we, if we need to be heard, do we, is it enough for us to just write in our local publications? Or do we need to find space in the foreign publications to, to talk about what's going on in the Caribbean? And is there even interest in those publications for us to have that voice? Well, I, I feel like the, the first thing is always at home. Like that's the most important thing because, you know, if there's not that um, sense of pride or that sense of accomplishment in what, you know, people are doing and for the sake of this conversation, what the artists of that particular country, that particular island are doing and what they're accomplishing, if that's not celebrated at ground zero, so to speak, then what chance is the rest of the world gonna take on to it? But there should be that, that groundswell coming from home, emanating to the world. We know that's not always the case. In many cases, uh, back to the Bob Marley example, he's a classic case of someone who found acceptance outside before the world, before Jamaica really took on to him. And as many artists, many people of that generation will tell you, like, you know, it's like, Rasta, you know, this is what's representing the world. Like, no, you know, it was kind of looked down upon. But it's only when the world said, wow, listen to this man, listen to these lyrics, this stuff is brilliant, and it's bringing people together. And it's just amazing stuff that people at home began to take that second notice. So I, you know, while it works both ways, you know, I, I'm a strong believer in that where, and especially now with all media being global, essentially, I can access, you know, Loop TNT, like any, you know, any hour of the day sitting here in Manhattan and, uh, you know, listen to radio stations there or any Caribbean country for that matter. So um, what I feel sometimes, it's not that journalists there are in, in Trinidad, in Jamaica, Grenada are invisible, but they're not given the acknowledgement that they deserve for like breaking these stories. And in fact, when um, sometimes when by the time a lot of the mainstream takes onto this, they've already looked at the, the trail that people like the two of you have done like on your platforms already introducing these artists and breaking down what they, what they do as they release music, as they perform at different events across the country carnival season goes without saying so um mm -hmm. you know it's sometimes though we don't we're not even aware of the impact you're making until like somebody kind of tells you about it so um of course there's um you never know what space there is or interest in media until you try so you know i would say even if somebody tells you, you know, there's no real interest in SOCA. I mean, I tell you firsthand, I've had a challenge with it, but I would also tell you, like, absolutely go for it because you have nothing to lose other than some of your time preparing how you want to present whatever it is. But if you're willing to invest a little time, you know, absolutely, I say go for it because the more voices out there, you know, championing this music, the better it is. And certainly those voices coming from Trinidad, where the music comes from, if we're speaking about Soka and Calypso now, certainly those home indigenous voices mean so much in the greater world out there. So absolutely, you know, I would say, I don't know, I would never listen to someone telling you, oh, there's no interest in that. I mean, it might not be the interest of 
you know, the hip hop or country yeah. rock or whatever, but so what? You can't let that stop you. You have to try, you know, if, if you feel compelled to do it, but never minimize what you're doing at home because that is, that is crucial work that you're doing day in and day out. And it's because you do it, you kind of, you know, it's just what I do. <laughs> you know, take it into the scheme of how important it is because we look back at these things, you know, um, I look back at stuff from, let's say, my first trip to Trinidad was 1996, and I look at some of those newspaper clippings I saved from The Guardian or The Express, whatever, and I say, wow, this is so amazing that these people, like, these writers took the time to, like, you know, have debates about calypsos of that season or, you know, maybe... Yeah. They bigging up something or tearing down something else but it's so amazing that they were able to they took that time to do that and as we all do in different spheres of what we do and even this pad podcast you know i mean this is this is really a wonderful thing that you know you're doing and addressing different issues with the music it's so important and we need more of these platforms to kind of you know, um, exchange ideas. How can we make things bigger? And we know that this music is of quality and it should be bigger than it is. It should be more recognized. In the case of Soka, it should be more recognized specifically for what it is. As yeah. I mentioned earlier, like it's sometimes yeah. folded into dancehall or this tropical house. or Tropical you know, house, but me. You know, I mean, yeah, that caught a lot of people. Like, what? You know, like, call it what it is. But again, that story... Soka and its own evolution is such an important story, but it's not been told enough. And um, that's why you get things like that because, you know, the stories are not out there. So, and that's where, again, that never minimize what you're doing right there on the ground because, you know, day in, day out, you're, you're living this thing and you're interacting with these artists all the time. And it, at all these events that, you know, people like myself can only wish to get to once a year or whatever it is you know if that so um yeah it's absolutely crucial what you do that, that is reassuring because I, I i had a bit of um you know i took a little issue when i when for instance when buju's album came out and you know the the, the his, his labels publicists they flew all these people down to jamaica and you know all these all these even though they were caribbean based journalists outside in the diaspora were getting all this access to him and for the Caribbean media, it was like radio silence, you know? Right. So wondering, like, what do we, do we not matter? Like, what do we do? do does it only matter if it's, if, you know, these stories have been written for publication with a big audience, obviously to sell albums, but in terms of telling stories that Caribbean people can only tell in a certain way, you know? Mm -hmm. so it, 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 it's good reassuring to know that people pay attention. Right. <laughs> Exactly. And I would like to say, as someone who first interviewed Buju in 1992, I think I know a lot about his story. And, you know, for every album that came out between the 90s and, um, you know, the mid 2000s, I was writing about it. And I was not one of those people who got called to be, you know, part really? of it. So, wow. Who knows what that thought process <laughs> is, but. I can't wow. put it on, you know, but um, I go very far back with that artist. I don't know that there's many journalists who were writing then when I first interviewed. I mean, a very bald head, 17-year-old <laughs> DJ, yeah. but just yeah. an amazing artist even back then. And, you know, had a very, like I said, ongoing 
journalistic relationship in terms of writing about all of this stuff, but I did not yeah. get that call this time. But you should have been a shoe in for that part. Hmm? I'm I'm surprised I had that also. Yeah, no, I just because uh, it came up, I would never be uh, you know bring it up, but because it's pertinent to what we're saying again, yeah. you know, what the thought process is. But you know, the, I guess there, I am sure there will be a time that we speak, and um, you know, maybe this wasn't the right project. You never know, and I just don't even want to second guess why. But yeah. um, you know, I bridges. Don't burn bridges. I hear what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, I, I'm so, you know, give thanks with everything going on in the world. I am still so busy that, you know, I kind of, I don't even want my head to be on these things about what, why am I not yeah. where it is, yeah. but rather focus on what I have yeah. right in front of me or the things I want to get yeah. done. As me, as me, they just have to keep pushing, but it is a, you know, there's, like I said, there's so much conversations happening among media people in the Caribbean about, you know, we exposed to the, we exposed to the world and we, mm-hmm. it has an interest in our culture, but right. we have a voice too, you know, to have that discussion and the conversations happening. Um, mm-hmm. But as you, as you, you know, you, as you see, you've been doing this since the eight, your interest in this music and culture has been around since the eighties. Um, are you finding it easier or, or more difficult now to, 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 to pitch your stories and, and get them in? Yeah, um, I would say like um, up until COVID, like I was, I would say it have to be a little easier just because I've been at it so long and, you know, kind of could, not that I say I have it down to a formula, but I have a better idea of how to pitch and, how it works but I still approach each one like you know each one is different and you have to you can't just plug things into a a recipe that you know worked the last time and expect it's going to work this time so I would say up until COVID um it was a little easier I find now with so many budgets being slashed all over the place Mm -hmm. and also people's minds on you know there are some there are life and death issues going on right now. And so I would say that sometimes like people's minds to get them to things that they're not even that familiar with in the first place, and then to take them over there and why they should do it when I've got like, you know, 45 things happening outside my door in New York City that like, we don't even know if our building's going to be here tomorrow. Like, you know, maybe this isn't the thing I need to be doing right now. Like, I'm saying some editors may feel. So I, I yeah. feel it has been a little easier over the past few years, but COVID is just a whole different kind of game. And um, it's put people in a, in a mood where they kind of maybe are a little more um, judicious in what they decide that they're actually going to run. Yeah. Is there, is there a story that you, you've never done, an interview that you've never done of a, of a, from the Caribbean that you really would like to do? You have a wish list? Um, probably my wish list are people who've passed on already. Like, of course, um, before I was in it, like Bob Marley and Peter Tosh would also would be very high on that list. Um, I did in, I think around 1996, no later but 1998 99 I did get to interview Lloyd Kitchener I I say that's one of my 
greatest things in Calypso that I've done because as someone who I admired, he wasn't the easiest, but he <laughs> kind of, as it went on, he got a little, like, I don't know, a little more into it or whatever. But um, I'm just so glad that I did it. And why well, I remember it was 99 now is because, um, you know, he passed away in 2000. 2000. It's about six or seven months before he passed. So, you know, that was a great thing. But, um, uh, I would, yeah, I would say so. People who have passed on are probably, um, I mean, I wasn't around for, um, let's see, like guys like obviously the, those old time Calypsonians like uh, Attila the Han and even the people who behind the scenes, I've always read about. Eduardo Sargomez, who's like a businessman in Trinidad, who was like really sponsoring a lot of these Calypso yeah. recordings. Like, I find that so fascinating. Like, I wish I could talk to a person like him. Like, what did he envision for the music? Why was he willing to sponsor that at so early in the game? Like, what kind of a visionary that must mm-hmm. have been? The same way on the Jamaica side, like, I wish I could have uh, done more with the early sound system pioneers like um i duke reed had passed on by the time i got into this but um i did interview cox and dodd once or once or twice but i never got to interview um prince buster that's someone i wish i had so those early players and that side of the thing so yeah i'm i really like i really i said earlier i really love music history and as relates to the caribbean kind of what all what got everything started? So my wish list yes. for these people who were really, you know, the artists, but also behind the scenes who played such important roles. And when you trace it all back, bringing us to where we are now. And that's the kind of rating, like at this stage of the game, 30 years in, I would like to do more historical pieces rather what, than... What so, about um, like Chris Brockwell or Eddie Grant? Have they ever come up on your radar as potential interviews? Yes, in fact, I have interviewed both of them. Um, okay. Uh, Mr. Blackwell, probably about five, five or six years ago, and I, yeah, that would be about five or six years ago, the most recent. And um, Eddie Grant, probably much longer than that, but I have to say, Eddie Grant was the first trip I ever made to Trinidad was when back when Ice Records was up and operating, and they and they did a tribute to the. Calypso greats. I don't know if you were there at the Normandy Hotel and um, it was uh, Sparrow. I, and I think and I remember that. Yeah, that's when he when he got the catalogs and he had um, yes. possibly re-released, re-released those albums. Exactly. Yes, I think I remember that. And, yeah. that, and that was great because um, I got to interview him and what he was planning to do and some of those, you know, icons, some passed on. I believe uh, Merchant was another one. Yes. And, um, there's another guy, um, I'll think of it, but um, anyway, and you know, some have passed on, but I got to interview so many that night, and I, I did the story for a, a publication called Request Magazine, which was like kind of like a rock magazine, like it was when back when we had record stores, you know, it was a record store ma- magazine of the Sam Goody record chain, and the editor just liked the pitch. Like, I don't okay. even know what possessed me to approach such a publication. <laughs> story, but she liked it and we went with it. And that felt really good to get something like that. I, I think part, part of it was Eddie Grant's appeal in that wider rock world. But 
he was a great conduit in terms of bringing some of the some of this traditional recordings to a yeah. wider the wider market. Yeah. 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 Um, something, something that I kind of, I guess is like a segue because those two gentlemen certainly had lived in England. I think one was born in England, Chris Blackwell, but, yeah. um, you as a journalist based in America, based an American journalist, have you ever covered the, like the, the British reggae scene or the British Calypso scene? Is that something you have ever done? I mean, I would love to have done more. I've done little stories here and there about, um, you know, like, great Trojan records in the UK and you know mm -hmm. what that meant to that music and um, a little bit about you know Kitchener's importance in the UK to like uh, what you'd say like black music overall and how his calypsos really were a center of you know bringing greater prominence to non you know non-white music of yeah. that time you know mm -hmm. and little things like that on the reggae side i've done pieces on the great um joshaka the uk jamaican born uk dj who is responsible for the whole dub phenomenon throughout europe i mean this is another Ooh. pivotal wow. figure who just does not get the recognition he deserves uh, um if you spend any time in europe um you know this this man is like traveling throughout. He's in his late sixties by now, playing to audiences that are like between twenty and thirty years old, and they're just mesmerized by what he does. But he's also like his impact is responsible. Like dub might be a forgotten music in its birthplace in Jamaica. You hardly hear dub yeah. on the level that you hear it across Europe at these various uh, mm. European festivals. festivals and Joshaka is like the primary person for bringing that across mm -hmm. so awesome! been these isolated stories but obviously you know I've never spent very much time there I've been to mm. the UK but never really spent much time there but it's a place I love and would certainly when we get past all this COVID, like it's certainly, you know, on the bucket list would, I get back. Would love to do that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Pat, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your, your, your input. You know, acknowledgement coming from people in the Caribbean who, you know, work in this every day as I work in it every day up here, but it means a lot. So thank you very much for saying You're very welcome. And for the invitation <laughs> to be a part of this. And anytime you want me, I will. <laughs> make myself yes. available and continue doing the good work that you do oh thank you, you to the world and hopefully one day we'll get our data something viable in the caribbean yes exactly we know how valuable it is now it's just a matter of finding that uh, those metrics that will support <laughs> what we yes. know intuitively yes Okay then, well, um, as I said, this has been a fabulous edition of Music Matters in terms of how we do this, how we get our music out there into the marketplace. So um, that's it for us. So once again, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to this edition of Music Matters. The Caribbean edition. I am Laura Dowitt Phillips. And I'm Nigel Campbell. Bye. Thank you.